Well, good morning to you. We're, uh, we're here, and it's Memorial Day weekend, and not, uh, not everyone's here, I know, but, um, but I, I'm going to try that just one more time just to make sure you guys are awake a little bit. Good morning. Good morning to you. Yeah, great to have you guys here. For whatever reason you find yourself here, um, whether you're visiting, as Kayla mentioned, whether you call this your church home, uh, it's an honor really to have you with us. Um, we're going to be in the book of Daniel this morning, so if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way there. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Kayla mentioned under your chair, uh, page 737 is where that's going to be. Otherwise, kind of aim for the middle and then go a little bit further to the right. Or if you have a digital device, then it's, you don't even have to worry about that. Uh, last week, we kicked off a series that we're going to be in for about 10 weeks this summer in the book of Daniel. And this book of the Bible, perhaps you're familiar with it, if you are, it's most known for a few acts of bold faith. That's what the book of Daniel tends to be known for most broadly, a few acts of bold faith. So like next week when we get to Daniel 3, you're going to read about the fiery furnace. And a couple weeks after that, we're going to read about Daniel and the lion's den. But just as important to those bold acts of faith, and maybe even more helpful, Daniel is actually a picture of what it looks like to spend many years remaining faithful to God in the midst of exile, in the midst of being forcibly removed from your homeland and forced to live in another place. Daniel, we find out even in chapter 1, he's in exile for almost 70 years, which is a really long time. And it's actually not till the very end of those 70 years that the lion's den incident happens. That's at the end of his time there, the end of his life. So long before there's this one memorable act of bold and defiant faith, there are thousands of moments, thousands of of actions and and decisions of faithfulness that Daniel makes day to day, starting from the first day that he's there in exile in Babylon. And so Daniel is really about this lifetime of perseverance and this lifetime of perseverance with the right posture for as long as you are in exile away from your home. And that's where there's so much for you and I to learn and to apply to our lives today. Because really, the people of God, we think about like, who are the people of God, what are they? One of the descriptions we could use is that the people of God are a people of exile. The people of God are a people of exile. That was true for Daniel. In very different, specific ways, that's also true for us. As the people of God, uh, you and I, by faith in Jesus, we, we have a place We have a place. The Apostle Paul calls us in the book of Philippians, citizens of heaven. We have a place. We're we're designed for perfect relationship with God forever. And so this place is actually not our place. It's not our ultimate home. So you can say that Christians really are in exile. We're away from our ultimate home. However, the place of exile is, in a very real, in a very substantial way, our place. It's a place that God loves. It's a place that God has sent us. It's a place that we're meant to pour ourselves out for the good of the whole rather than hiding out, rather than just kind of passively waiting for the end to come, for the consummation of all things to come. So we have a place, this isn't it, and yet, this is it. And that has really everything to do with what we're pursuing together as a church. You hear our liturgists say this very often when you come, or someone say this from the front, very often when you come to Liberty Church. Liberty Church, our vision, our heart as a church, as a group of people, 
is to live, to speak, and to serve as the very presence of Jesus for the Harrisburg region. That involves a place. It's built in, right? The Harrisburg region, there's a place associated with that. That has everything to do with posture. It's not just speaking. It's not just serving. It's not just living. It's all of those things. And how we do that matters. That has everything to do with perseverance. Not just preparing one another for this one or two uh, bold actions of faith in our life, whatever the lion's den equivalent might be in the 21st century for us, but really equipping one another for a lifetime of living, a lifetime of speaking, a lifetime of serving as the presence of Jesus. And Daniel chapter 2 is one of these texts in Scripture guaranteed to make you uncomfortable at the lengths to which you're called to go to do that. So I'm going to invite you as you read to join me in my discomfort. Join me in my discomfort as I read Daniel chapter 2. I'm just going to read the first 24 verses. It's, it's a lot longer chapter than that. The first 24 verses give us a really good glimpse of what's going on. So follow along with me as I read from Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went, in, he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for just the faithful witness of your word and the people that we get to encounter in it. And we thank you for the the example specifically of Daniel this morning and the help that it can give us for how to navigate life in exile. Um, God, we pray that you would open our eyes and your ears this morning um, by your spirit that you would work deeply in our hearts. Uh, Help us to see the places in our lives where we can celebrate because you've brought great progress in being faithful exiles. Help us to see the places in our lives where we have more opportunities, where for fear or for some other reason, we're not taking the opportunities that are available to us. Would you just help us, God? We need you in your mercy toward us to make us faithful in exile. And we pray that you would do that this morning, even in just small ways or in big ways through uh, your word to us. Pray that in your name. Amen. So as we pursue this, this call, this vision of living and speaking and serving as the presence of Jesus, Daniel 2 really highlights what the presence of the people of God entails. And what we see in Daniel 2 is that the people of God are God's agents in the world. The people of God are God's agents, agents of God's work in the world. And specifically, the two things we see here, agents of preservation and agents of revelation. People of God are agents of preservation and they're agents of revelation. So first, the people of God are agents of preservation. Have any of you ever had a hero daydream before? Hero daydreams? You know what I'm talking about when I say that? Um, so periodically in my life, and it tends to happen when I'm out in public somewhere, I'll all of a sudden start to daydream about a scenario where something unfolds and I get to step in and save the day in some way. It's a hero daydream. I don't know if you guys are as weird as I am, but that's what happens in my mind occasionally. One of the best ones that I can remember was a few years back, um, actually, while I was working in the sound booth of the church that I used to serve at before I came here to help, to help plant Liberty Church. So I'm sitting in the sound booth um, during a worship service, working the soundboard, uh, and the soundboard in this church is right by the doors. So uh, a first-time guest, a visitor, comes in through the doors, um, probably a 40-ish-year-old white guy who I'd never seen before, and for whatever reason, it, I, just, I just drifted off into a daydream in that moment and envisioned, like, what would it be like if this guy just pulled a gun right now? What would it be like if this guy just, you know, he kind of paused in the doorway like, what would it be like if this guy just, just pulled a gun? What would I do? And since it was my hero daydream, you know, without a moment of hesitation, I, I jumped up on top of the chair and leapt off of the soundboard to tackle this guy before anything else could happen. You know, save the day. Save the day. Anyone else have stuff like this happen to them? I mean, you're just totally leaving me hanging up here this morning. All right, maybe some. 
So after a few seconds, you know, I snapped out of it. Um, it. He didn't pull a gun. I didn't tackle him. We didn't have to, like, you know, have a lawsuit involved or anything like that. Um, if Whether or not you have hero daydreams, Daniel chapter 2, and what we read in Daniel chapter 2, throws a wrench in the gears of what it looks like to be a hero. It throws a wrench in the gears of everything we, th- we know a hero to be. So what do hero daydreams look like? You take out the bad guy, right? You take out the bad guy, or maybe, especially if you're feeling particularly selfless that day for some reason, maybe you give up your life for the sake of another. Maybe you go down taking out a lot of bad guys with you as you do that. What you don't do in a hero daydream is help a bad guy in order to help a bunch of other bad guys, You don't serve and help a bad guy in order to save a bunch of other bad guys. That violates like every sort of hero code that's ever been invented. But think about what Daniel's doing here in Daniel chapter 2. He's in exile in Babylon, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream that really upsets him. It really unnerves him. So he enlists all these wise men of Babylon, the enchanters, the magicians, the sorcerers, to come and to tell him his dream and its interpretation. He refuses to tell them what the dream itself was. And he, he wants to know from them that they're actually going to give him a legitimate interpretation. He doesn't want them to fake it. So he doesn't even tell them what the dream was. And you see here a glimpse of the evil and the ruthlessness of King Nebuchadnezzar. What he's capable of. Because he makes this immediately a really high-stakes venture. It's like, tell me the dream and its interpretation. I'll reward you greatly, honor you greatly, or don't tell me and die a terrible death. And on top of that, I'll level your houses. That's Nebuchadnezzar's ruthlessness. And most of these people are his own people. Most of these wise men, these leaders, they're they're Babylonians. They're Babylonian advisors. They're Babylonian leaders. But for Nebuchadnezzar, it's all about what they've done for him lately. It's all about... Can they do what he needs them to do right now? And if not, then in his eyes, there's really no purpose in them being alive anymore. So understandably, nobody is able to meet Nebuchadnezzar's demands. And true to his word, then it becomes a death sentence for all of the wise men in Babylon. That is, until Daniel intervenes. Until Daniel intervenes. He intervenes, talks with the captain of the guard, shares the news with his three companions, and it says that they seek mercy from the God of heaven that they might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now think about that. Think about that. The Babylonians are the people who have forced Daniel from his home. They're hostile toward Daniel's people. They're ruthless. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is their top leader. And these other wise men are some of their other top leaders and advisors in the kingdom. As as Babylonians, their beliefs, their worship, are in direct opposition to the ways of God, the ways of Daniel's God. So if you're Daniel, why would you help the king of Babylon in order to keep pagan wise men alive? The logical thing for Daniel to do here is nothing. The logical thing for him to do is nothing. And yeah, that means he's going to be killed too, But so will all the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers in the entire kingdom of Babylon. All of them. 
So this seems to be the perfect scenario to die like Samson. Anybody familiar with the story in the book of Judges about Samson? This seems like a perfect moment to go out like Samson did. After a lifetime of fighting the Philistines, this this perpetual enemy of ancient Israel, Samson is betrayed, taken into captivity. But in captivity, he's paraded into this huge assembly hall of the Philistines. And in this last act of his life, God gives him strength to lean on these two pillars in that building, to knock them over. The whole building collapses. And Samson dies, but it takes out all these Philistines and Philistine leaders with him. And it says in Judges 16 that those he killed in his death were more than those he killed in his life. Now, doesn't that seem like more of an effective and efficient approach for God's people who were taken forcibly into exile? Like, wouldn't it make more sense for Daniel to just go down swinging, go down with the rest of these wise men of Babylon? Daniel actually has it easier than Samson did. He doesn't have to do anything. Just don't do anything. And that's going to be his fate. But Daniel does something. He does something. He pleads with God to allow him to help the king, this this ruthless enemy king, in order to save the rest of these bad guys. You know, so from a human perspective, Daniel is like the worst hero ever. Except that Daniel is not meant to be the hero of this story. God is. And this is exactly the kind of pursuit that God calls his exiled people to all the time. The presence of the people of God is meant to restrain evil. It's meant to preserve life. So the people of God aren't meant to be heroes, but they are agents of preservation. When Jesus saves us into his people, there's a lot bigger picture and bigger purpose to that than just our individual lives. And there's a lot bigger picture and bigger purpose to that than just the lives of of other Christians and our involvement in the lives of other Christians. We're meant to serve the common good as a tangible expression of God's common grace. Now, what's common grace? Common grace is the reality that God pours out a ton of his favor, a ton of his gifts on everybody regardless of what they believe about him. So people who reject God completely in all hostility and entrench themselves in that opposition, they still benefit tremendously from God's work in the world. They still have breath in their lungs. They still have bodies that function. They still have minds that understand. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that that when God causes the rain to come, it rains both on the righteous and the unrighteous. So these gifts of creation, these gifts of God's care of his creation, those are gifts of God's common grace. So also, God's people are called to be a tangible expression of God's common grace. And our presence in the world is meant to serve the life of the world. Not that it will always be felt or received as a gift. We're actually promised the opposite, that it very often won't be received as a gift or appreciated by people in the world. But it's, it's meant to be a genuine gift to the world, restraining what is evil, pushing back what is dark, preserving life. Now, this can make us really uncomfortable. This is the part of Daniel 2 that makes us really uncomfortable. And one of the reasons we become so uncomfortable is because we can become blind to how dependent we ourselves are on God's grace and God's mercy. As Christians, we have this 
we have this really terrible tendency to forget. To think that, that we somehow have come to believe in Jesus, to see our need for Him. We've come to, to follow Him and to use our lives for, for good and worthwhile things because we're smarter than other people or because we're more capable than other people or somehow better than other people. We forget just how much we needed and need and will always need the mercy of God in our own lives. But Daniel seems to understand this really well. He seems to see that the universal truth about every human being that's ever lived, and that is that we are all completely dependent on the mercy of God. Each and every one of us are completely dependent on the mercy of God. That's true for ruthless dictators who kill their own people. That's true for the leaders of pagan religions. That's true for the exiled Israelites in Babylon. Daniel sees that there's a shared aspect of humanity in this. That the fact that we're all dependent on the mercy of God makes us share something with every human being that's ever lived. And so when he hears about the impending death of all these wise men in Babylon, he seeks and pleads the mercy of God, but not only for his own benefit, but also for the benefit of the Babylonians, the very leaders of the people who have forcibly removed him from his home and taken him into exile. He becomes an agent of preservation for the life of the world. So what might that look like then for you and I today? It's not ancient Babylon. It's 21st century central, central Pennsylvania. What might that look like? A lot of different things that it might look like. Here's just a couple examples to get your mind thinking that way. What would this look like in the workplace? Do you go to work? Do you put in your hours? Do you get your paycheck, and then do you move on with your life? Or do you help your organization, your company, thrive? Because actually in the thriving of your organization, the men and women you work with can also now provide for themselves. They can have stable jobs and provide for them and for their families. And maybe even that organization can then serve the greater and common good in this region in multiple ways. I know that's not possible in every single workplace. I think it is possible in most if we think about it deeply pursue that. But do you see the difference in that, in the way of thinking? One is all about looking out for me, looking out for number one. The other is all about the life of the many, thinking about the many. How about governments or neighborhood associations or civic associations? What might this look like there? Romans 13 actually tells us that governments are established by God with a specific purpose, to restrain evil and to preserve life. Which means that, though we have different roles in the world, there's a lot of overlapping purpose between what governments are called to do and be and what the people of God are called to do and be in the world. So do we participate in the ways that we're able to and invited to participate? Do we learn about issues? And not just the issues that immediately impact us and our lives. Do we learn about the issues that impact people around us? Do we learn about candidates when we vote and make educated decisions when we vote? Do we join in these places, whether it be governments or neighborhood associations or civic associations, do we participate in those seeking to preserve life from these public square venues? How about education? What would this look like in terms of education? And I need you to hear me really clearly on this uh, because I don't want this to be taken any way other than what I intended. There are really valid reasons to choose different kinds of education options for your kids. There's very valid reasons to do that for homeschooling, for private school, for public school. 
So don't hear me say anything except that. As we make those decisions, we have to do that with a view to seeking the good of a society as a whole. So are we thinking not just of our own kids? Are we thinking about uh, the kids in our neighborhood who might not even have the luxury of, of that choice at all? The choice might be made for them because they were born into this family or they don't even have the opportunity to do something different. Are we thinking about that? Right? You don't have to. You have valid reasons not to send your kid to public school. So you don't have to do that. But I think you do have to care about the kind of education that is available to the public, regardless of what decision you, you personally make. As if not, if all of these people who might care about this begin to disengage and distance themselves, then over time it sends education systems into a death spiral. And you see that a lot in major urban centers and other places in our nation today. So whatever education option you, know, you choose for your kids, pursuing, pursuing wisdom in that, will we be agents of preservation for all kids and not just our own? Here's the big idea. Whether it's workplace, whether it's government, whether it's education, if there's a you know, thousand other places we could apply this to, here's the big idea. If the people of God are called to be agents of preservation, that means we don't just abandon the world. It means we don't just abandon the world to its ways, even and especially when those ways are in direct opposition to God. Now, it's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot easier to take a posture of apathy. It's a lot easier to take a posture of a, of a distant superiority. Right? Like, hey, um, I hope that goes well, but come find me when it doesn't, when it implodes, so I can tell you I told you so. Right? Like, it's easier to take that kind of posture, but the mercy of God toward us that we're dependent on actually leads us to be conduits of that same mercy to the world. So our gifts, our abilities, our opportunities, they're not just for us. They're also meant for the good of the world. They're meant to restrain evil. They're meant to preserve life from the public square. And as these agents of preservation, we plead the mercy of God, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the whole, for all people. Now, the other thing that we see here in Daniel 2 is that the people of God are agents of revelation. Agents of preservation, agents of revelation. Daniel here serves as the means of God's revelation to King Nebuchadnezzar. So the king has this troubling dream. He knows it's significant, but he has no idea what it means specifically. So he asks the smartest people he knows. He goes and finds the smartest people he knows, the sorcerers, the magicians, the astrologers of Babylon. Listen to what the wisest people of that day and that culture have to say about this. Verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That statement from these wise men in verse 11, that's a testament to the limit of human understanding. It's a testament to the limit of human wisdom. And not just for ancient Babylon, but really for every era. Left to ourselves, we don't know everything that we need to know. Left to ourselves, we don't know everything that we need to know, so we need revelation. We need things to be revealed to us. And Daniel chapter 2 is a chapter that's all about revelation. In the original language, the word reveal or similar derivatives of that word, things like show or declare or make known, it's used more than 30 times in this one chapter alone. 
And notice the progression that happens in Daniel chapter 2. So verse 11 anticipates this need for revelation. Like no one can tell the king about his dream. Only the gods could do it. They're not here. And really what it does, it, it, it becomes like this slow-pitch softball, you know, meatball setup for some, like someone tell this guy that there's a God who makes the otherwise unknowable known. So in verse 27 and 28, which we didn't get to, but they're great verses, Daniel does exactly that. And it says there in verse 27 and 28, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king this mystery that the king has asked. He goes on to say, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known. And then fast forward even from there to verse 47, King Nebuchadnezzar himself, idol-worshipping, murderous, rampaging dictator that he is, he starts to believe that the one true God does indeed reveal. And he says in verse 47, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So the God Daniel worships, the God that you and I worship, is a God of revelation. He makes the otherwise unknown known. He makes himself known. And he reveals in in broad ways what's sometimes referred to as general revelation through his creation, through his care of that creation, through the conscience that he has put in every single man and woman that's ever lived as his image bearers. That's God revealing himself. But he also reveals himself even more specifically through what's called special revelation. That would include things like the miraculous, things like Daniel here being able to interpret a dream he didn't even know, he hadn't even heard before. But it also includes Scripture, the, the written and revealed Word of God. That's God revealing Himself. Most significantly, God reveals Himself through Jesus, through Jesus Christ. See, verse 11 here, it's not just a statement about the limit of human understanding. It's actually an unintentional prophecy. It's actually an unintentional prophecy. There are things that can only be revealed by the gods, these wise men say, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Which means that there's always going to be stuff that we need to know that we can't know unless, unless that God were to make his dwelling with flesh, with people. And Daniel was written hundreds of years before Jesus comes into the world. But when, as the Apostle John says in his Gospel, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, when Jesus entered into human history, the ears of the people of the world should perk up in that moment because this God making his dwelling among us is going to reveal everything that we truly need to know. And that's what Jesus does in his perfect life, in his death in our place, in his triumphant resurrection, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, reveals not only the deepest need and the deepest longings of our heart, but he also reveals himself as the satisfaction of that deepest need and the deepest longings of our heart. He reveals himself as the source of life for the world. And just as Daniel here was an agent of God's revelation to King Nebuchadnezzar, so too the the people of God in every era serve as agents of God's revelation to the world. 
Because Jesus, for us, on this side of Jesus' specific revelation, his life, death, and resurrection, because he is the highest and the clearest example of God revealing himself to humanity, to the world, that means for us living and speaking and serving in line with the truth and with the beauty and with the joy of the finished work of Jesus. That's not something that we're just supposed to do as Christians, right? We miss so much of the heart of God. We miss so much of the opportunity and meaning and purpose of our lives if we just see that as a command. This is something we actually get to do. And I think seeing it through the lens of revelation helps. We get, you and I, as agents of revelation, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what the Apostle Paul refers to himself as, a steward of the mystery of God. So things which were once unknown or unknowable have now been made known through Jesus, and you and I get to be the stewards of that and share that with people. God has revealed what we truly need to know, and he's given us the privilege of living and speaking and serving as the bearers of that. So the people of God, agents of preservation, agents of revelation, and what I hope that we see this morning is that these two pursuits are so incredibly interdependent and interrelated. It's actually because of revelation that we know the significance of preservation, that we know the value of it. If not for God creating and sustaining the world, if not for God creating men and women in his image, we'd have no reason to restrain evil and to preserve life. We wouldn't even know what to restrain and what to preserve in the first place. So revelation gives significance to preservation. But it's in the preservation, in the life of the world, that revelation happens. So think back to the story of Daniel. If Daniel does nothing, and he dies with all of these wise men of Babylon, and all these enchanters, magicians, sorcerers, astrologers, they're all wiped off the face of the earth in the midst of their folly without knowledge of, without relationship with God. But through Daniel, their lives are preserved. And in that preservation, they also in that same moment get to see the revelation of God. So through an agent of preservation who is also an agent of revelation, they get a real encounter with the one true God. And so Christian, Christian man or woman in the 21st century in central Pennsylvania Through the mercies of God, this is the opportunity that's before you and me. Christians are for the life of the world in every sense of that word. We're for the life of the world in the physical and material sense. We want people in their lives to thrive. We want places in societies and workplaces and governments and all that. We want them to thrive. Christians are also for the life of the world in the spiritual sense that other people who are just like us have that same need for the mercy of God just like us might be actually connected to the source of all life. And Jesus is the one who says, I am the life. I am the life. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, there's only death. There's only decay. But in him, there's life. And there's life to the full. So may we be agents of preservation May we be agents of revelation, and may our presence in the midst of exile truly be for the life of the world. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we want to use our lives for worthwhile things, 
And we want to see that you have shown your mercy to us for our sake, but not only for our sake. It's not meant to, to terminate with us. We're meant to be those who pass on your heart and your mercy for the world. And thank you for the picture of Daniel. Imperfect as he is, he gives us a picture of what that looks like in practice. Would you help us to do that well and faithfully in our own exile? We long for the day that we're with you for eternity. That's our home. We know we're going to feel out of place until then. And yet we want to see this place as the place that you love and have sent us. And we want to use our lives to preserve life, to restrain evil, to push back what is dark in the world. We want to use our lives to help other people see Jesus, to see your revelation in Jesus. And it's only by him, it's only by his death and resurrection that we can do any of that. So thank you for your mercy toward us that saves us. Thank you for your mercy toward us that propels us and compels us and sends us into the world to do the same. And as we come to this table, remind us again today of our ongoing need for you. May we come, may we find strength from you, May we find help in our time of need. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.